Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. I can't say my first eight months were an unmitigated disaster. It's a complicated upbringing for footballer children and their parents alike. How did I end up forking out £20 for an online personality test? It can be a rather gruesome and astonishing time. Sex work is, after all, a customer service job. When I close my eyes, it is to that cottage that I am transported. Today, I met a butterfly. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling in on what they've been thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in April. Farmer Tom Martin was giving his review of Amazon TV's series Clarkson's Farm, while sex worker Tilly Lawless was reflecting on how the gender dynamics in the industry are more complicated than they might first appear. Jen Zia, Alice Garnett, was recounting a corolla coaster of a week of the highs and lows of London life, while Anglican priest Alice Goodman was explaining why she's not unnatural at prayer. This month, Former England cricket captain Michael Brearley asks whether today's sporting parents are too involved in the careers of their offspring, while Sarah Collins, who writes the Mindful Life column about her experiences with OCD, explores the almost spiritual significance a holiday to Devon takes on. Meanwhile, Sheila Hancock ponders the life lessons she can learn from a beautiful brimstone butterfly. But let's begin with Alice Goodman, who reflects on some almost disastrous experiences at the beginnings of her career in the church. This June, I will celebrate the 20th anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood. The ordination was a big day. My title parish, St. Mary and All Saints Kidderminster, mustered the green barrel crockery and prepared the chantry for a buffet luncheon to end all buffet luncheons. My sister and her family flew over from Minnesota, and my youngest stepson and his family came from London, representing the Jewish and Catholic sides of the family. My godfather, the composer Hugh Wood, came via Oxfordshire, offering a lift to the Reverend Professor Christopher Evans, then aged 94, and the Right Reverend Peter Walker, formerly Bishop of Ely, who had baptised and confirmed me. Most importantly, my husband and daughter were cheering me on. In the Church of England, you are ordained first as a deacon, attaining the priesthood a year later. You then serve a kind of apprenticeship for two or three more years, working as an assistant curate, curate for short, under a more senior member of the clergy known as a training incumbent, or TI. It's the church equivalent of someone being a houseman in a hospital. They're a doctor, but they're still in training. Curates seldom get a choice about where they begin their ministry. If you say, I'm sorry, I don't think this will work, there's a strong sense that you may not be given another choice. In the past, large town centre parishes were sent curates as a matter of course, as were priests with recognised gifts for training new clergy. These days, it's not so clear why a certain parish gets a curate, or what the curate should get out of the curacy. I think it should be a storehouse of good memories, so that later on, when they're in a parish of their own and things go wrong, as they inevitably will, 
they will have the strength and hope to persevere. My bishop's first attempt to set me up in a curacy fizzled out just before Lent in the year that I was due to be ordained. We had paid a visit to the church in Worcester. It didn't occur to me to offer to help in the kitchen. Later in the evening, my teenager called me a bitch. The prospective T.I., who had teenagers of his own, blanched. A deacon is called upon to endeavour to fashion their own life and that of their household according to the way of Christ, that they may be a pattern and example to Christ's people. I clearly didn't and wasn't, and that was that. My diocese had to scramble around to find another curacy, and when one was found, I was told it was my last chance. I can't say my first eight months as a deacon were an unmitigated disaster. When I received the letter ending my time in Redditch and informing me that I would not be priested and would have to move out of the curate's house, some of the lovely people in the congregation wrote outraged letters in my support to the bishop. But my relationship with my T.I. and his wife was dire. The first sign of trouble was when I was told that if long-life milk was good enough for the vicar, the curate had no business buying fresh. It got worse. There were timesheets to be filled in, 60 hours a week for work, two hours on Sunday afternoon for quality time with the family. By Christmas, my T.I.'s wife had begun to make a big deal of declining to exchange the peace with me at Mass. It's hard to describe my sense of dread seeing that curacy disintegrating. Ordained ministry is a way of life as well as an occupation. Deacons have been through an arduous selection process in which they've been repeatedly examined, sifted, questioned, and have bared their souls. Many of them have given up homes and professions. But although a diocese will have invested time and money in that curate, more time, money, and reputation will have been invested in the T.I. So when things go wrong, it is almost inevitably the curate who is expendable. I hear more and more about curacies going wrong, about bad matches between curates and training incumbents, about gifted young clergy leaving the church. This isn't something that theological colleges talk about. I think they should. I would be happy to help design a study unit on what to do when things fall apart, with practical advice and theological reflection. I would even come and teach it. Because, in the end, my ministry survived. My bishop did something bishops do very rarely. He changed his mind. I was moved to another curacy. I repeated my deacon's year. And when I came up and knelt before the bishop, and he put his hands on my head and called down the Holy Spirit to ordain me for the work of a priest. Forty other priests surged round and laid their hands on me too. For a moment I was four years old again, in Trafalgar Square, with two fists full of crumbs, and my sister's instruction to open my hands for the birds to come and feed from them. I did, and vanished into a vast flock of pigeons. Thanks be to God. While Alice Goodman stresses the need for good mentorship, Mike Braley, 
argues that some sporting parents need to take a step back. We've all seen them, and at every level of sport, the parents who get over-involved, incessantly shouting at their children on the field, telling them what to do, running them down, showing their rage at decisions by match officials that go against our Johnny. Naturally, they want the best for their boys and girls, and there's usually a healthy identification with and encouragement of their talent and performance. But some say parental behaviour is becoming worse, more vociferous, tribal and partisan. And there are stories of referees and umpires giving up in the face of abuse and times of violence. There may even become a crisis in the recruitment and long-term commitment of these essential officials. I've been learning about how this scenario plays out in the academies and youth recruitment of professional football clubs. Most parents are willing to put themselves out considerably to encourage their child in a sporting passion. They drive them miles across town to their training several times a week, braving traffic, roadworks and road closures, and the exhaustion of this extra burden. They may be juggling the needs of their talented offspring enrolled at a specialist institution with those of their other ordinary children at the local school. They have to weigh academic and other qualifications against the requirements for football, football and more football. They have to cope as the children get older with the distressing risks of failure and rejection. At times, rejection comes out of the blue with no warning that progress was anything but good. There's a phrase for keeping on as opposition for the promising ones, boys who already judge not to be up to it. It's called, I gather, the mannequin culture. My parents supported me throughout my career as a cricketer in a laid-back way. Not that there was anything like a professional club academy when I was young. As I look back, I'm amazed at how restrained my father, in particular, who was himself a fine amateur cricketer, was. I can't remember him criticising me or even questioning my methods, technique or my psychology once I'd started to play first-class cricket. Before that, he wouldn't publicly defend or attack me and would never make his presence felt while watching a game. But he would privately rebuke me for selfishness, boasting, or giving unrealistic expectations for other players in the team. Cricket and football are very different games, and the career of a footballer in particular is short, and, if successful, involves huge amounts of money and fame from an early age. Children and parents have to deal with shrewd and persuasive agents. The stakes are high. 17-year-olds at the leading clubs may already be earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a year or even more. Will they become the next Harry Kane, Kylian Mbappe or Lionel Messi? Or will they, as is more likely, fade away into a minor league? Most parents love their children whether they make it or not. But there are those who live vicariously through them. For these mothers and fathers, their own disappointments and failures in life are to be compensated for, even rectified by, the successes of their children. 
They may swing from adulation of the child to condemnation. You're no good. You're not practising hard enough. That other boy's much better. Look at what we're doing for you and you don't get stuck in. The child of such parents is loved for what he does or might do rather than for what he is, for himself. At the same time, these parents, like the rest of us, have less respect for authority. Some interpret the use of VAR in football, as with the right to appeal via the decision review system in cricket, as making it acceptable for spectators to yell at the referee, demanding revision or review. Tribalism joins hands with the paranoid Trumpian view that any authority that refuses to take our side is a tool of evil forces. Professional football clubs who take on little apprentices and hopefuls from the age of nine or younger are well aware of these issues. One coach of the young said, what is it about the parents of these children? If their children worked in a bank, their mothers wouldn't be... Sorry, if their children worked in a bank, their mothers wouldn't come in screaming against their bosses. Why do they feel free to do it to us? Club coaches and counsellors see it as central to their job to guide parents and children to view the twin imposters, success and failure, with a degree of detachment. There are, they tell me, big changes of mentality these days. There's a story about Dolores, the mother of the great basketball player Michael Jordan, when, at 15, he complained about not being selected for his varsity basketball team as a sophomore, she told him to get back into the gym and work harder. On another occasion, when he felt undervalued, she didn't blame the coaches or go to the athletics director. She didn't pull him out. She told him he had to do better if he wanted to succeed and found him a part-time job that paid $3 an hour. Back in 1969, Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about the stages of mourning when a loved one has died. She suggested the acronym D-A-B-D-A, DABDA. D for denial, the first stage. A for anger, second. B for bargaining, perhaps with God. D for depression or down. And a for acceptance. Today, one academy counsellor uses a version of this to prepare parents and young footballers for disappointment, adding N for new dream. The route into top sport has never been easy, but many of the boys have it even harder these days. There's a lack of male role models. Moreover, the normal routes into coming of age which include alcohol and exposure to drugs, are so readily detectable by blood tests that the overall footballing culture almost rules them out. This can encourage bursts of bad behaviour of various kinds, which can also lead some to social media exposure and thus to social shame. It's a difficult and complicated upbringing for footballer children and their parents alike. The coaches have learned that boys whom they call too the coaches have learned that boys whom they call too cool for school rarely make it to the top. What's more, 
they may lead other kids down the same path of selfishness and superiority. One club refers to these boys as vampires who devour the others. I learn that the coaches see their job as akin to that of Steve Waugh when captain of Australia's cricket team. Waugh's aim, he told me, was to make players not only better cricketers, but better people. While Mike Braley considers the impacts of social media on young footballers, Jen Zia Alice Garnett asks why her generation are obsessed with online personality tests. How did I end up forking out £20 for an online personality test? A targeted ad for a questionnaire called the Enneagram, which gives respondents a number from 1 to 9, caught me at a particularly vulnerable moment one evening when I was scrolling through Instagram. A series of chaotic nights out, poor dating choices and search lean induced nightmares had left me ruminating over two questions. The first, am I a good person? And the second, why am I this way? After checking the depleting figures in my bank account, I was scrambling to figure out why, I'm in it, why I am unable to have a simple night out without waking up the next morning down £50 and a dozen cigarettes. So, naturally, £20 seemed like a reasonable sum to spend on trying to figure out what the fuck is wrong with me. For Gen Zers, wrestling with questions of identity, there are myriad frameworks available on the internet to help us put a label on who we are. After graduating, I felt increasingly drawn to them as I struggled to find a sense of identity beyond academia, and the reputation I enjoyed for the kind of debauchery that, while celebrated at university, meets with slight disapproval in the working world. While young women are attracted to astrology, corporate men find solutions in Myers-Briggs types. A combination of four letters, each representing one end of a personality binary. For example, E for extrovert and I for introvert. And these may present the key to unlocking our innermost selves. Or at least the innermost self that works a nine to five. Then, of course, there's attachment styles. A new way to pathologise unhealthy relationship habits, which I stumbled upon, you guessed it, while I was despondently swiping on TikTok. For those who aren't familiar with attachment styles, there are online quizzes and results sneakily hidden behind a paywall that can reveal whether you have a secure approach to relationships, in which case you're fine, or an avoidant or anxious approach, meaning you're a bit fucked. The latest popular test is the one I had paid for, the Enneagram, which was first developed in the 1960s, but has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity on social media. On completing it, I discovered that I am type 3, the achiever, which vaguely translates to ambitious attention seeker with a crippling fear of failure and abandonment. That checks out. When I combine this result with my Virgo Sun and Scorpio Rising star sign, my ENTJ, aka the Commander, Myers-Briggs type, and my dismissive avoidant attachment style, I am left with a bleak portrait of a power-hungry sociopath whose ambition and deep-seated fear of intimacy overshadow any depth and emotion. Now, I know that this isn't my reality. I can't see my friends cry without shedding a few tears myself, which I always hide behind a hug. My grind set 
or my grind mindset rarely extends beyond my working hours as I have an immeasurable capacity for lounging around in bed. I know logically that people are a culmination of the environment they grew up in, the books they've read and haven't read, their friendships and their failed relationships, but still I succumb to the allure of compartmentalising myself into these cookie-cutter personality types. For my generation, both the real and online worlds feel increasingly chaotic as historic markers of stability like homeownership drift out of reach, while simultaneously online culture becomes more and more fragmented. As we spend more time online, young people are looking to social media to find a sense of belonging and community. But where millennials only had to agonise over which Hogwarts house they belong to, Gen Z has a hyper-specific mass of subtypes to choose from. TikTok alone has birthed countless archetypes, from the productive and minimalist clean girl or vanilla girl for 2023, to the problematically infantilised coquette, to the charming, frazzled English woman inspired by naughty's film heroines like Bridget Jones. My favourite is Goblin Core, or Goblin Mode, which won Word of the Year in 2022. The word celebrates being messy and dishevelled, the antithesis of the clean girl and her pristine contemporaries. Faced with choice paralysis amid this world of online personae, having a test to tell you who you are can at least give you a place to start. While there's little these questionnaires have told me that I don't already know, there is joy in scanning the results with a smirk and a nod saying, yeah, that's so me. If knowledge is power, then understanding your star sign, enneagram type and attachment style can offer some clarity in an otherwise messy world. But when Socrates said, know thyself, and Shakespeare wrote the line, this above all, to thine own self be true, I doubt either of them were imagining that we would embark on journeys of self-discovery via online personality tests. Farmer Tom Martin explains how a long-standing farmyard practice was misconstrued on Twitter and why farmers should support each other both in the real world and online. Lambing time is a busy and involving affair and family life for our flock is not always straightforward. Sheep typically give birth to two lambs in the springtime each year, but some may only have one, whilst others three or more. Some mothers won't have enough milk for all their offspring, and those with only one lamb will have more than they need. There are also mothers who reject their offspring, and those who just forget how many young they have and wander off, leaving one or more behind. Some mothers even sit or roll on their lambs. It can be a rather gruesome and astonishing time. Lambs that are rejected or whose mothers don't have enough milk join the gang of orphans that are bottle-fed by the shepherd, although the best thing is to be adopted by another ewe who is a mother. For centuries, shepherds have adopted out orphan lambs to mothers who have perhaps lost their own young. Outside the farmyard, the common and historic process might seem a bit macabre. We literally skin the dead lamb and fit the skin to the orphan lamb like a little coat. The orphan then smells like the sheep's own offspring, which gives the adoption the best chance of success and the orphan lamb the best chance of life. Recently, a well-known Welsh hill farmer shared a video of this common practice online and received death threats in response. While the police were investigating those death threats, 
the rapid response team of the Twitter police questioned the motivation behind the video. Was it educational and informative or provocative and attention-seeking? In a since-deleted tweet, a prominent English farmer accused the Welshman of being the UK's farming answer to Nigel Farage. With battle lines drawn, anyone with an opinion was lining up behind either the Welshman, appalling tweet beneath them someone of your supposed stature and shut up, or with the Englishman, nail plus head. He's incredibly cringeworthy and should be ashamed. Everyone had an opinion and they were all too happy to share it. In recent years, threats to those in the public eye have become all too common, with the ownership of a social media account oft treated as a license to interject, threaten and abuse. Many farmers who are using social media to open the farm gate to the world have been met with poor behaviour from the least savoury portion of the online community. Often, in the brevity of a social media post, long-practised or complex agricultural methods can be misunderstood, and online we tend to shoot first and ask questions later. And it would seem farmers themselves are not immune to outbursts, as demonstrated by this recent blue-on-blue, blue, or should this be green-on-green green action? Out in the real world of farming, the wet weather has caused problems for newborn lambs and calves. It's delayed the sowing of spring crops and interrupted other springtime farming activities. A neighbour recently shared with me how he was feeling under pressure, having not had a day off since October. Perhaps those frustrations have simply spilled over onto social media. Now, I'm a big believer in unity, politically, nationally, and both within agriculture and beyond. Were we to unite and look beyond the bickering on our screens, we would see winter-sown crops and grass growing well in the fields. Thankfully, it appears that the English farmer agrees with me and he issued an apology for this tweet just a few days later. Now we can focus on the good news, that farming is a huge part of the answer to the big questions that our society is asking, from climate change mitigation to mental health, from nutrition to nature. For sex worker Tilly Lawless, trying to work while grieving a friend is emotionally difficult. I'm watching porn with my client as I sit beside him in bed at seven in the morning, knowing all my friends are kicking on from Mardi Gras. On the screen, a girl is writhing in a cage as someone zaps her with a low voltage electric current. The client made me pick what genre I wanted to watch from his huge digital collection, as if I wanted to watch any. And I chose kink because the others felt too weird next to him, or too close to my own tastes. He's obviously seen these vids many times before and tells me facts about each of the actresses as I touch him. I've got nothing against porn in theory. I've dabbled in it and my close friend Soraya, who passed away a few months ago, was a porn actress. But it's just not something I'm into. And I do think it's dangerous when a man's only relationship to women is through some form of media whether that be manga or Bond girls or porn, rather than through interactions in real life. My client seems to be one of those men. The brunette won Miss Germany 2008. It's easy to forget that porn stars have lives outside of porn too, he tells me, and I try to make a noise of polite interest rather than revulsion. Speak for yourself, I want to say, as if I, a prostitute, would ever forget that I'm a person, or that Soraya was a person too. His words feel especially unnecessary and cruel to hear in the pain of grief. He must think he's paying respect to women in sex work when what he has actually been doing is dehumanising us and mansplaining my own experiences to me. I can't argue back or defend my friend like I usually would, 
because I have to stay professional and compliant. But every smear against porn stars feels like a dishonouring of her. I wasn't able to work in the immediate aftermath of Soraya's death. Sex work is, after all, a customer service job. And it can be draining enough playing pert and pretty on a normal day, let alone when all I can think about is that I'll never see her again and that I didn't pick up the last time she called me. I did try to work a week after she died. I had a nice client pick me at the brothel and we had easy sex and I came. Afterwards, I burst into tears. Something friends have described to me post-orgasm but I've never had happen to me before. I apologised and said it had nothing to do with him, that I had lost someone recently. And he said, don't even worry, cry it out. And let me just speak about her for the rest of the session. I tried to explain to him the wave of guilt and confusion that hit me as I orgasmed. That I could be having this feeling that she, who loves sex, would never feel again. That I could feel something so sweet when she was dead. But I also felt relief because my body had been holding grief in ways I didn't realise, and I had needed that release without knowing. After that, I knew that I needed to take time off. I was a liability in the room, and so I took a month. But here I am in this hellish overnight booking, because the money was too much to turn down. I've seen this client a few times before. The last time I left him, escaping from the drawn curtains and artificial darkness of his bedroom to the screech of parrots and the glare of a November day in Australia. I'd sent a WhatsApp voice note to Soraya saying, God, remind me to never see this client again. Overnights are just not worth the money. They make me so depressed. 17 hours with someone is way too long. She had sent me a message back, commiserating, as she always did. Now all I want to do is rant to her again, and I can't. I know she'd find some dark humour in the fact that I am here with him again, hating him and yet hoping that he saved some of her vids in his Girls Out West folder, because all I want to do is see her, whatever the circumstances. Although Sarah Collins has no choice but to pack her OCD into her suitcase, a holiday to Devon is a break from the pressures to be independent she feels in everyday life. I have spent 21 Easter holidays in the same cottage in South Devon. My parents first took my sister and me there when I was four and she was six. In my memories, it is the place where my childhood happened. I may be sitting on the shabby sofa in my London flat, but when I close my eyes, it is to that cottage that I am transported. I'm walking down the cobbled path lined with daffodils towards the front door, knowing that a plate of scones sits inside on the dining table and ahead of me is a week of spring sunshine. People on TikTok are obsessed with the concept of core memories, a few memories that are so deep and important that they shape us forever. There's not much scientific evidence to support their existence, but my ability to recall the specific shade of pink of the blossom tree in the garden is proof enough for me. In the face of peril, or what a more resilient person might call minor inconvenience, 20 or so deep breaths can take me back there. A memory this powerful is not really about place, it's about people. There is my family, of course, but also the people who rent the cottage next door, a family of five from London that has also stayed at the farm every Easter for decades. Through annual snapshots of each other's lives, we formed a friendship with a kismet quality. I was excited to see them when, a few weeks ago, I packed my clothes and my obsessive compulsive disorder into my suitcase and sped down the M5 for this year's annual trip. 
We came together for our usual activities, strolling to Dartmouth to eat Cornish pasties, descending as a caterwauling group of nine on various unsuspecting National Trust properties. On a spring day, Colton Fishacre, a house in the arts and crafts style with glorious gardens that overlook the sea, is as close to heaven as you will find on earth. And for a week, we fell back into the marshmallow of each other's kindness. Over 20 years, we have weathered heartbreaks, griefs, professional failures and mental health crises together. In Devon, the burdens that we carry in our individual lives are shouldered by the group. In twos and threes, composed not of members of one nuclear family, but of an intergenerational blend of two, we walk miles a day, celebrating and comforting and listening to each other. This year, four of us took a morning plunge in the cold sea because it was an item on one of the party's bucket lists. It makes me wonder what it'd be like to rely on community for more than just a holiday. The week is a reprieve from the constant pressure to be independent in a modern capitalist Britain, fighting for yourself, fending for yourself, striving for nothing but your own betterment. They say it takes a village to raise a child. When did we stop acknowledging that sometimes it also takes a village to keep an adult alive? The rituals of the holiday, from shuffling as foot passengers onto the car ferry across the River Dart to wolfing down honeycomb ice creams, garnished not with a common flake but with a local fudge stick, might seem like small pleasures. But for me, they take on an almost religious significance. They are what we have always done. In the darkest times when the thick smog of obsession has obscured the path almost completely, they are tiny lights in the distance nudging me back on course. The reminder that you are capable of happiness can be happiness enough. A few weeks ago, as I walked up the hill from the harbour in the sunset and looked out to sea, I felt both sadness and joy. Here I was again for the 21st time, still worried, still obsessive, still not convinced that everything will be okay. But if I fall, this group of people will catch me. And whatever happens, South Devon will be waiting for me next year. While Sarah Collins emphasises the importance of small pleasures in managing mental illness, actor and writer Sheila Hancock admires the fleeting beauty of a brimstone butterfly. Today I met a butterfly. The garden centre was full of seductive summer plants that had winter-weary gardeners licking their lips. Then the radiant star made its entrance and stopped them in their tracks incandescent yellow diving and weaving, then landing on a leaf. Wings closed, it perfectly resembles its green landing stage. It virtually disappears, a flawless disguise. Look how clever I am, as well as beautiful. But you can't buy me like a flower and trap me in your earthbound lives. That old creature over there looking at me has been around for 90 years. I will only have one if I'm lucky, but I will spend it dancing and flashing my wonderfully yellow wings, making the daffodils and primulas look dull and faded. I've been in and out of hospital for the past two months, coping with the ravages of age. I've had every test under the sun. I suspect there are laboratories all over London with saucers lined with blotting paper where scientists are trying not to grow mustard and cress, as they might have done as children, but to conjure a response from drops of my blood. If they can identify the alien nastiness nestling in my lungs, 
then they can clobber it with the appropriate antibiotic. So far, my blood is infertile and we cannot locate the clever virus that is avoiding all their killer medicines. It makes me quite proud that my body is so bolshy, but also quite poorly and glum. I'm not well cast as an invalid. I do not do brave suffering well. My body feeling weak makes me frustrated and angry with myself and everyone who tries to help me. No, I don't need a bloody carer. No, I'm not going into a home. Yes, I bloody well do still drive. I will not play this part as society dictates. If I fall flat on my face rather than sit in an armchair with a rug over my knees, that is my choice. I don't want to take it easy. And like the butterfly... I want things to be beautiful. I watched a new chat show last night featuring a comedian who I like. The biggest laughs were for stories about porn, genitalia and defecation. To me, it seems so ugly. To, to my grandchildren, it is apparently their norm. In fairness, I suppose Shakespeare would have found it funny in his rude bits. But he also said... Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? So he's allowed. How will it end? How wonderful if for my exit I could evolve into a yellow butterfly and Somerset and... How will it end? How wonderful if for my exit I could evolve into a yellow butterfly and Somerset and whirl and... Dance my way into the sun, leaving behind my earthbound existence. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more of our family of writers in April and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to our website where you can read writing from Tom Lamont on Prince Harry versus the press, David Willits on the writer Matthew Goodwin, Matilda Mallinson on fossil fuels and much more. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next time.